This is the Edify Podcast for the Servant. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip Tetrarch of Iturea, and the region of Triconitus and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene. That's not Texas, by the way. While Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region of all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that, that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none, and he who has food, let him do likewise. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, What shall we do? So he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. Now as the people were in expectation and all reason in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire, and with many other exhortations he preached to the people. Luke chapter 3, 1 through 18. Remember years and years and years ago, maybe mid to late 18th century, 17, 1800s, maybe, depending on what continent you were on, where crowds would gather by the thousands, whether we're speaking of um, uh, Daniel Rowland, whether we're thinking of Spurgeon, whether we're thinking of even Martin Lloyd-Jones in modern times, if we're thinking about J.I. Packer, or think about folks today where thousands and thousands and thousands of people gather. Um, I'm here in Atlanta, and you have the Mercedes-Benz Dome where the Falcons play. Once or twice a year, there's preaching that goes on by denominational churches, and the place is packed to the gills. What is it that draws people to those crowds? What is it about ministry? What is it about preaching that, that does that? Uh, is it faddish? Is it something that's, that's good? I mean, what, what's, what's, the, what's the draw there when it comes to stuff like that? In Luke chapter 3, the passage that heads, you know, this this podcast that we kicked off with today, um, it has a remarkable description of John's ministry and, and the tremendous effects that it produced. And so suddenly a voice is, is heard piercing the darkness and the deadness of, of the apostate Israel, what's what we often call the intertestament period, where there's 400 years of non-canonical silence, Um 
where God doesn't speak to have it written down. We, we just trust he didn't, write, he didn't speak, but we don't, we don't know that for sure. But either way, it was one crying in the wilderness. That's how he's described as he is preparing the people in the way of the Lord. And one of the amazing things about John's preaching is the large numbers of people who flocked to hear him. So they were desperate. They wanted to hear this. They were curious. Some people thought that he was Jesus and so on. And so Matthew tells us in Matthew 3, verse 5, Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around Jordan went out to him. And they not only went out to hear him, but, but, but you know as well as I do, many of them also responded humbly to this message. They're professing repentance. They're being baptized under the baptism of John. So what is it that drew the crowds? Was it a hipster style? Was it designer jeans? Uh, I've, seen, I've seen, <laughs> seen some of these, quote, worship leaders up front with their V-neck shirts, and the V is almost down to their navel, and you can count all three of their chest hairs, and they're making the statement, let's get everything out of our mind, let's focus on the Lord. Meanwhile, we can see their bare chest and almost to their navel. No, none of those things. I mean, think about John. John wore a cloak woven of camel's hair, leather belt around his waist, um, economical attire often worn by peasants. I mean, this, this, this used to, you know, these are the kind of things that people sleep on at night. So asking that question, what drew the crowd? Was it a, was it a ministry strategically surrounded by, you know, an innovative market strategy, you know? No, John lived a simple life in a humble dress, a modest diet of locusts and wild honey. Was it the location? Was it suburban context? Was it easy access, large parking, attractive, inviting signs, this, that, the other? No, it was none of those things that we often and sometimes think that we must have in order to draw people to the gospel of Jesus. I remember Curtis Cates used to tell us in school, if you have to bring them in with whistles and um, bells and whistles, you got to keep them with bells and whistles. I mean, you think the location of your church is bad where you are. But John preached in the wilderness in Jordan. Linsky described it as a hot, uninhabited depression, which is wild in every way and removed from all civilization. This does not sound like the most ideal place to preach. I mean, maybe if you're in Texas, you're used to that. But in West Texas, that is. But realistically, the fact is, is that there is no ideal place except that place where God has presently placed us. Was it then perhaps cutting-edge technology and carefully choreographed musical performances that drew crowds? No, but that may be what draws folks today. None of that was what he, of what he had. What, what was it that drew people to the ministry of John? It was bold, spirit-filled, conscience-convicting, judgment-warning, Christ-exalting preaching of the Word. Let me say that again so that you are well aware of what you and I need to be about when we think about nobody wants to hear the gospel. We're in a bad place. The church is a dump. There's still the burnt orange tracks over in the corner with the cobwebs. The place smells like mold. It's the pale, br pale blue brick. Fill in the blank. What will draw people, honest and good hearts, to the gospel of Jesus? It's bold, spirit-filled, conscience-convicting, judgment warning, Christ-exalting preaching of the Word of God. Jake, why have you drawn our attention to this description and to the ministry of John? I want to remind you that our topic for the next few, next few episodes is preaching for conversions. This is what John did. He preached for conversions. As we read in verse 3 of the passage in Luke, 
John came preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Matthew describes his preaching in um, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's just another way that John that we're saying that John preached for conversions, because that's what he's doing. Sometimes the word repentance or repent is used together with the word of faith. I mean, realistically, repent and believe the gospel. That's often used in, 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 our, in our Bibles. Repentance is, is speaking of what we might call the negative side of saving of a, of a, um, a, a saving response to the gospel, grief over uh, the hatred of sin. Um, while, while faith is speaking of the positive side of a saving response, turning to Christ to be delivered from sin and its guilt, punishment, and domination, all those things. But at other times, as it is here, it's used alone to refer that, that the whole of our turning from sin to Christ the whole of a sinner's turning from sin to God through faith in Jesus Christ is described by the word repentance. Repent and believe the gospel. Changing of mind which leads to a change of action. In other words, John was preaching for conversions. He called men and women to repent for the for the forgiveness of their sins. That's, that's what he was doing. Turn away from, be baptized into this, bear fruit worthy of that repentance. Verses 16 and 17, he preached repentance by pointing them to Christ Jesus, the Savior, the, the Messiah. We're told in Acts 19, verse 4, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. John 1, 29, uh, we see him preaching repentance and pointing to Christ. Here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This This believing repentance was to be publicly expressed by submitting to the waters of baptism. Now, this isn't the same as what you and I are baptized into Christ today. Uh, that that absolutely was a, a baptism um, of repentance, and it, and it was for that time. You remember Apollos. Apollos taught everything perfectly concerning the will of the Lord. He was a very eloquent man, very educated man of Alexandria. Did he study at the, at the Library of Alexandria? I don't know. That's where he was from. Probably so. Probably so, but but that's just speculation. But what did he have wrong? The baptism of John. What did he need? The baptism of Jesus, what you and I are commanded to be under today. So John lived before the cross and the resurrection. His message was simply was essentially uh, and simply the, you know the same message that you and I are called to preach. He preached the forgiveness of sins. He preached the necessity of repentance, and he preached faith in Christ. In verse 18, Luke describes John's preaching as, as preaching the gospel with many other exhortations he preached to the people. Uh, the Greek word that's translated there, preached, is a form of the word euangelizo, which obviously you and I well know means to preach the good news. So it says that many other exhortations he preached the gospel uh, to the people. John's message was the same message as the Lord Jesus, Matthew four seventeen. Uh, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the same message Jesus tells us to preach today, except the kingdom has come um, to fruition. We are in the last days of the kingdom. We're living in this this time where um, where Jesus reigns as king in heaven over his kingdom, which is the church. Um, he, he's commanding repentance. He's commanding baptism. He's commanding the remission of sins and giving that remission, uh, and that is to be preached in his name. On the day of Pentecost, Peter preached the first sermon that we often call it of the church. 
uh, of the beginning of the of the church, certain people cried out, "What shall we do?" What does he say? Repent, and every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. It's the same message essentially as John. The baptism is now changed; it's now into Christ. Romans six: You're raised in that newness of life, just like Christ was raised. The Apostle Paul, when he stood on the Mar- on, on Mars Hill, declared to the men of Athens, God commanding all men everywhere to repent. Acts seventeen verse thirty. And when summarizing before the Ephesian elders his preaching in Acts twenty twenty one, uh, Paul said there that that he preached both to the Jews and to the Gentiles the repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. So John preaches the same message. Jesus the apostles preached the same message. It's the same one that we're, we are called to preach. So the only difference is that we have more light concerning the glory of Christ, more light concerning the redemptive work of the Christ than John and, and than John had because we live on this side of the cross and the resurrection. We have more light. We have the the full revealed will of God. We have the glory of Christ through through the Spirit's work. Christ died, risen, the Spirit has been given, yes, but John's message and ours, repentance and faith in Christ are essentially the same. But the main reason I want to begin this episode or talk about this episode and in, 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 in really the preaching for, for conversions and the preaching of John is that he provides a very striking illustration of something that must be included in the course of our evangelistic preaching, something that is often missing if we're not careful. Namely, preaching for conversion involves seeking to awaken sinners to their lost condition. Now, I don't intend to to argue, and you wouldn't either, that, that this must be the focus of every evangelistic sermon that we preach, but that this should be one of the most, or should be one of the most aware or most present components of our overall evangelistic preaching endeavors. John, he, he provides us with excellent example of this preaching to awaken sinners to their lost condition. One of the truths often for, forgotten or neglected in evangelism and in, and in preaching of our day is that God ordinarily um, does a prior work of preparation in bringing sinners to Christ. Um, the Holy Spirit does this through His Word, but there are people in the life of a sinner and even, even the sinner himself understands what good morals are. What's often called in theological circles as common grace. Um, I think it was the Armenian thought that they, they deduced, and, and we probably would align more with, with Armenian thought, Jacobus Arminius. If you don't, if you don't know who that is, go, go, go put that into your Google box and take a peek. But God, God provides some sort of goodness and kindness, prevenient grace is what they call it. That's, that's a technical term, that God provides us grace before grace. Now, you and I well know, Paul told to the Roman church, it's the goodness of God that leads people to repentance. This is not saving grace, but this is a blessing. This is where God doesn't owe us anything, but he gives us the blessing of life. He gives us the blessing of morality. He gives us the blessing of sleep and so many different things that people receive and all goodness comes from God. So in that way, God is preparing people uh, to come to him because he's giving them nothing but kindness, nothing but goodness. And that's a, that's a bigger, deeper look because we often think about, well, only the Holy Spirit works through the Word of God. Well, 
he he does work with tandem the word the word of God and and there are brethren who are on both sides of the fence. Some say that it's only through the word. Some say that he works alongside the word. Um, the fact remains is is you can't tell me how your own spirit dwells in your body, but but you're going to argue how God's spirit dwells in mine. That's that's beside the point. I know God gives His spirit to all them that obey Him. Acts five will teach us that. That's that's just where we're going to leave it. We don't have to have a camp to stay in in regards to how the Spirit works necessarily. There are things that are that can be doctrinal error, and we have to be careful. We don't we don't need to go down those lanes, but we need to be careful nonetheless. But we don't need to villainize and 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 make people criminal for thinking of how the Holy Spirit works if there's no Bible verse that would contradict the position that they hold. Anyway, God is still doing His work. God is in the business of saving people. How He brings people providentially to salvation is up to Him. But He does that. He provides that for them. The prayer of a sinner that is answered is the prayer of a sinner who's asking God for truth. God answers that prayer. The Bible teaches us that. The Bible shows us examples of that. A person who wants to fear God and do what is right, God's not a respecter of persons except for that person. And He will bring it to them. He will arrange the meeting. That's just one of the one of the um, one of the things that we deduce from the Bible. There are people who are looking for this, and God is giving them His goodness to lead them to this point. We got to be careful. Have to make distinctions. Yes, there is some prepa- some uh, pre- uh, preparation. There is some of that. There is some pre preparation that God does. Um, that's. Moving on, anyway, there's also a subtle form of that uh, pre-preparationism that we need to be aware of, Uh, and this is where, or this is when preparation is viewed as something that's qualifying a person to come to Christ, the idea that you must experience a certain amount of conviction of sin or a certain degree of fear, humiliation, uh, before you're warranted to trust in Christ and be saved. This kind of teaching effectively sets up roadblocks. Uh, in the ways of sinners, and, and that actually keeps him from coming to Christ, that we've got a, that a person who they need to know how, 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 how bad they really are off, and they really are pieces of trash and all those sorts of things, and, and they could never really come to Jesus, and Jesus has to work a miracle to save them because they're so sorry and all those sorts of things. That's, that's no bueno, um, no bueno. Another important, important distinction uh, to be made is between, I guess, what we might say is the warrant of faith, um, the way of faith. Um, the warrant of faith is simply the command and the invitation of the gospel to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and the promise of salvation to all of those who do. Uh, and, and I use the term believe uh, the way that the Bible uses it. Often it's an inclusive term. It's not an exclusive term most of the time. Um, the time that it's used in exclusiveness, even the demons believe that's exclusively. They have a, they have a thought that they know that God is there. That's that's not the saving belief. Saving belief is an is an acting belief. But moving on, um, we we must not confuse pre preparationism. That's a good. That's the word in, in these various forms of, um, or or with legitimate teaching of scripture however god brings people to jesus however god brings people to the truth is god's business 
um, how he awakens them. He does it through his goodness. Romans chapter 1 teaches us that there's no such thing as an atheist. Everybody has a common thought and a common knowledge of who God is and that God is there and that there's a reality to this creation that you and I live. But we have to be careful. We have to awaken people to the faith. Evangelistic preaching, true evangelistic preaching, confronts men with their sins and explains their dreadful state before God. Until they see this in some kind of measure, they'll never really know anything of true repentance. They'll see nothing precious in Christ that should cause them to desire Him. All our talk about the necessity of the cross and about grace and the need of the new birth and forgiveness, justification, salvation eternal life, that that will never move them. It won't register them until we will capture their hearts with the idea that they are lost and that they are, in reality, hell-deserving sinners. Now, that, that sounds awful. That sounds bad, because it is. That makes us feel bad, and especially in 2022, when it's such a uppity, peaceable, let's not really condemn people world in which we live. The Bible's not about that. What Go back to the beginning. What drew people to the preaching of Jesus is that they were in starvation mode and the truth was preached. That's, that's, what, that's what drew people to, to the preaching of Jesus and to the preaching of John and the apostles. But a caution is in order here. We, we have to understand and acknowledge that God does not lead every sinner to Christ Jesus in precisely the same way. Uh, some of you were raised up in the church like crops, where you were born into a household of faith. Some people, not so much. Some people, God allowed uh, to live certain lifestyles. God continued to um, um, bring about them providentially to the cross of Christ nonetheless, but he did it, he did it differently. There's not some standardized experience with clearly defined stages and steps uh, where a person is brought to Jesus beforehand. Now, becoming a Christian, that's a different animal. We respond to the gospel the way they did in the Bible. That's how a person is saved. That's how we know that. A person who says that they have a faith that is not of the Bible, they don't have saving faith. They believe something in salvation that was not found in the Bible. They don't, they don't have the salvation of God. There is a great variety in the way that God brings people to him, but the way that he puts people into Jesus Christ is very specific. We need to be specific with the fact that people are lost, and there is a very specific way that a person becomes not lost, and that they can know beyond the shadow of a doubt where their soul is headed. With variety in mind on how people are brought to Jesus, we can say this, no one is truly converted without being inwardly convinced that he or she needs to be and of why he or she needs to be. And without knowing and being convinced that they can do absolutely nothing to save themselves, there is a, there's a, a I would say a spirit given because it comes from his word, an awareness of sin, uh, an awareness of helplessness, an awareness of danger. The Holy Spirit is teaching them that. There's awareness, helplessness, there's danger. Um, people must get to the end of themselves and see that they have no other hope but Jesus. So whether whether a person realizes that by being raised up in a church house, being raised up in faith, uh, being raised up, you know, like crops, uh, born and raised up in the church, or whether a person was living in all kinds of ways before and don't respond to the gospel of Jesus until they're 73 years old. God does his work. God does his providential work. God knows them that are being saved. 
Uh, it's one of the reasons why he hasn't come back yet, because there are still people who were on this earth who have not responded to the gospel of Jesus, and he will not destroy this earth until he until they do that. That's a part of his his sovereignty and his his all knowingness that he knows who will be, who will and will not be saved, and he's not going to destroy the world until the person that he knows is going to be saved is saved. When will that be? We have no clue. But Holy Spirit, through the preaching of the Word of God from the Word of God convicts people that they are lost, all kinds of people, in all kinds of fashions, in all kinds of places, in all kinds of ways. A person must get to the end of themselves and realize they have no other hope but Jesus. No other hope. There was a Puritan named John Flavel. Um, He was considered to be a great English Puritan. Um, The perspective that he expresses as, as I guess was typical of earlier times. Most of the well-known of Flavel's uh, works in his book, The Method of Grace. Uh, this was this is interesting. In great detail, he lays out the manner, the method, and the ways that God's grace in the salvation of his people. He lays it out and lets everybody sees it. And, and it's a series of 35 sermons divided into six categories. Talk about methodical, right? And one of the sections includes four sermons under the heading things which ordinarily precede and lead to a coming of Christ. And he addresses in those four sermons the work of God's Spirit in convincing men of their sin and their lost condition by by where they stand. Flavel argues that under the power of Satan, sinners have a false sense of security. Uh, and this false peace is, is bolstered by such things as natural ignorance or religious involvement, self-deceit, Superficial responses to the gospel, self-evaluations based off of self-love. There's a term for us today that we understand. Uh, they compare themselves to other people, and they say, well, they're not not—they're worse than I am, and so on and so on and so on. So hence, Flavel says it, it follows that the generality of the world are in the direct path to eternal ruin. Well, Jesus said that. There will be more in hell than there will be in heaven. Satan's the greatest numerical soul winner of all time. So what he does is he goes in to argue that 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 when God shows mercy to a sinner, he strips away the false confidence by awakening that sinner to their true condition. In other words, God does a work of preparation. He tears down, uh, and it's good that God tears down through his preaching, that God shows these people, shows anybody, and even me if I'm not careful. Jake, you're in need of restoration. You need to be restored back to God. Uh, Martin Luther, he, he put it this way, the law must be laid upon those who are, not, who are to be justified, that they might be shut up in the prison thereof until the righteousness of faith comes, that when they are cast down and humbled by the law, they should fly to Christ. The Lord humbles them, not to their destruction, but to their salvation. For God wounds that he may heal again. He kills that he may quicken again. Charles Spurgeon said the Christian minister must declare very earnestly and pointedly the evil of sin, which created the need of a Savior. Let him show that sin is a breach of the law, that it necessitates punishment, and that the wrath of God is revealed against it. Open up the spirituality of the law as our Lord did, and show how it is broken by evil thoughts, intents, and imagination. By these, by this means, many sinners will be pricked in their hearts. The law goes first, like a needle, and draws the gospel thread after it. 
Therefore, preach concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. Probe the wound and touch the very quick of the soul. Spare not the sterner themes, for men must be wounded before they can be healed and slain before they can be made alive. No man will ever put on the robe of Christ's righteousness till he is stripped of his fig leaves, nor will he wash in the fount of mercy till he perceives his filthiness. What a quote. That was um, that was from Spurgeon's quote on conversion as our aim lectures to his students. What a what a what a thought in the parable of the sower. The Lord speaks of the sower sowing the seed in four different types of soil, and he he would go on to tell us that the seed represents the gospel, and and the four souls represent the hearts of men, and and all those sorts of things. Remember, we looked at <coughs> Hosea ten and verse twelve a few weeks ago. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness on you. Fallow ground is land that lays idle, um, usually overrun with weeds. It's got to be plowed and prepared to receive the seed as it is shown. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, that needs to be me, it needs to be you. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. A herald was sent before Jesus to announce him um, and to fulfill that and, and to break up that fallow ground again. You don't know what you'll do this Sunday. You don't know if you're going to be the person to sow the seed, or you're going to be the person to break up the fallow ground, or you're going to be the person to clang a pickaxe up against a stone heart. You don't know where you're going to be, but the fact remains is when we're preaching for conversions, we need to preach nonetheless. We need to preach nonetheless. We're going to focus on Jesus. We're going to focus on John's ministry and the preparation for Christ, really in a historical sense, but also in an in, in experiential sense in the lives of whom he preached. We're going to do that over the next few weeks. But realistically, for for this episode, preach to awaken sinners. Um, remind them that they're lost. Uh, don't be glad about it. Don't be happy about it. But just but teach the truth and preach the truth nonetheless uh, and all the same. God be with you this week in your preaching. You can be a tool for God to bring about people to salvation. You don't know where they are. You don't know their life. You don't know their history. But the fact remains that God is providentially still working his goodness in the lives of people and he's calling all men everywhere to repent. And he will do that through you this Sunday, through your preaching. So may God bless you and bless your work in the preaching of his word in awakening sinners. <laughs>